2 Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 6 through 15 um, this morning. We're going to be in our third week about giving. Anybody excited about that? Oh, yeah. Thought so. Um, Again, if this is your first time here, we are um, working through books of the Bible, and this is not a section we just chose randomly. Uh, this is where we land because we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are perhaps the most explicit books uh, or chapters in the New Testament about giving. If we would have planned this better, if we wanted a, a really good giving message, um, we would have done it not on Memorial Day weekend, all right? Uh, not during the summer, all right? So you know our heart and our motives are in the right place, working through a, uh, a parts of Scripture, and this is where we land. Uh, if we would have planned it better, we would have. But we believe that God is sovereign and good, and he means this text for us to be today, and it's supposed to be for us this morning. And so last week, what we talked about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, we talked about the motive to give. The motive to give, we said, wasn't the law. We're not motivated to give out of percentage. That's why integrity, we don't talk about a percentage. We talk about the motive. The motive to give is the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us when God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross for us. He didn't give 10%. He gave everything. And so as a response to that, we give our lives as a living sacrifice to him. And so that's the motive that we give. We have, we, we call it gospel-centered generosity here in integrity. We don't give because we have to. We give because we want to. But even though we give, we think about it giving as a sacrifice, as a commitment. We got a budget. We got to set aside money so that it would go to uh, advance the gospel. We have to make commitments that we make about work, about where we live, where we play, so that we can advance the gospel. And as we make these sort of sacrifices, the question then is what's in it for us? Like, I know we get to see people come to know Christ. It's a beautiful thing. But is there anything that's in it for us? Most of the time we hear messages on giving. It's done often through the lenses of what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is one of the most heinous um, uh, heresies that is around today. I hate the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel is actually not the gospel at all. The prosperity gospel says uh, that, that God's goal for you is to be healthy and wealthy. Now, although you may be healthy and wealthy, but that does not biblically show up in the New Testament. That is not the chief end of God is to make you healthy and wealthy. The chief end of God is for, for him to glorify himself and for us to enjoy him forever. And he's the treasure, not what we get. But oftentimes you hear the sermons that are more prosperity gospels driven. We want you to give this morning. And part of you giving is that if you give, that you'll get tenfold back or sevenfold back. Or even maybe bold preachers will say you'll get a hundredfold back. And you hear the story about the one man who only had $20 in his pocket. And he made a decision, well, I'm going to give that $20. And then all, as he's walking home, he finds $40 on the sidewalk. And then God like, you know, doubled his investment. And what ends up happening though, when we do that, um, the motive to give is still based on us, isn't it? The motive of the investment is based on what we get in return, not so much glorifying Christ. And so oftentimes when we hear about rewards, it's done through the lenses of prosperity gospel. You give so that you can get more back, which never actually works, by the way. But what's interesting is Paul wants them to know there is a reward for giving. 
And the reward is far, far better than material things. It's, a, it's an eternal reward that allows us to love Jesus more. And so that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. The text starts in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 9. We'll start in verse 6. Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his or her heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, remember, Paul has already talked about the motive to give. He says it's the gospel. And Paul then, to, to describe, to begin this conversation of giving, if you even go back, if you were to look at chapter 8, and we, we started this little section off in, in chapter 8 in the very beginning, where Paul is using an example of a generous church to motivate the church of Corinth to give to another church called the Church of Achaia. The Church of Achaia was one that was struggling with persecution and struggling with wealth. And Paul wants to give to, wants the Church of Corinth to give to them so they can continue to advance the gospel. By motivating the Church of Corinth, he uses Macedonia as an example because Macedonia was a church that has also gone under extreme poverty and extreme persecution. And Paul says, even though they were in affliction and poverty, they still gave generously. And Paul's saying, I want you, Church of Corinth, to do the same thing. And I want you to sow the gospel. And Paul is, is reminding them, you're not to give under the law, but you can give as what you've decided in your heart, but you're to give generously. Now, it's interesting what Paul does next in verse uh, 9. Uh, or, or, yeah, nine, in verse 9, he, he, he's going to quote Psalm 112. Look at what he says in verse 9. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Very interesting that Paul's saying, hey, I want you to give based on what the gospel has called you to give so that the gospel would be made known. But then he goes into um, Psalm 112, which is really an interesting place because Psalm 112 is about God's view of the uh, righteous and God's view of the wicked. Let me just read to you this really short chapter in God's word in Psalm 112. It starts like this. It says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends who, who conducts his affairs with justice. But the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. He, will, he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man 
sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked will perish. Now, what Paul just did is he quoted from this section that we just read. Paul is reminding them, hey, do what a righteous person does, give. But what we just read is interesting because it seems as if if you give generously, if you're a righteous man, then you are going to be blessed. You're going to get all this wealth and you're going to acquire all these things and you won't be moved and you, you know, you'll have, you'll be, you'll have financial provision given to you. And the wicked, on the other hand, man, they're going to be poor. They're going to struggle. That's what the, the psalmist just says. Now, let me ask you that question. Now, if you read this and you look at the difference between the outcome of a righteous man, the outcome of a wicked man, is that what we see in our country today? No. Are, are, are the, are the most righteous people the most wealthy? No. Are the, most, are the poorest people the most wicked? No. Don't go up to a poor person and say, you're poor because you're wicked. If you do that, you've got some issues, right? Because it's not even true. We're all wicked. We all need a savior. So why did the psalmist say that? Is he saying, okay, if you're righteous, you're gonna, that's going to lead to wealth. Why does he say that? Is that a, is that a promise that we can claim for ourselves today in 2017. Well, to understand how to apply promises made in the Old Testament, how they apply to us today, first of all, we have to understand God's relationship and the way that he communicated to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Because can we say that every promise that God makes to Israel automatically applies to us today? Can we say that? No, we actually can't. And let me, let me give you an example of, of some scriptures that are often misused where there are certain promises that were excluded for Israel that people try to apply today. Here's, here's a classic one. 2 Chronicles 7.14. What's 2 Chronicles 7.14? If, you, if you've never been in church in your whole life, you may have heard this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, we read that text and we say, when often what happens around this time of year, July 4th weekend, there's going to be a pastor somewhere in the United States of America that uses this text and says, this is about America. If we would just humble ourselves... He'll bless our entire country. If we would just seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. I remember after 9-11 happened, I heard a pastor use this text and say, it's because we're not humbling ourselves that this tragedy happened. It's the misusage of the text. Why is this a misusage of the text? Is God talking about America? No, because America didn't exist yet. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Israel because it's actually true about Israel. If Israel would humble themselves, pray, seek the Lord, turn from their wicked ways, what did he promise Israel he would do? He would heal them. If you even, we're not even going to go there because of time, but Deuteronomy chapter 9, when the law was given to Moses, what does he tell him in Deuteronomy chapter 9? Well, if you obey the law, I'm going to bless your land. I'm going to make you rich. I'm going to give you rain. I'm going to give you animals. I'm going to give you cattle. I'm going to give you everything you need. He even tells Joshua after Moses died, Joshua, 
If you stay with the law, here's what's going to happen. Your way will be prosperous and you will have good success. That's Joshua 1.8. Everything, every promise that God made to Israel was about you are going to be uh, prosperous if you obey. There's a reason why that happened. Because God, in his kindness to his people, the Israelites, he wanted, them to, he wanted to show them obedience matters. He's saying, listen, when, when the law was given in Exodus chapter 20, God's purpose in giving the law to Moses to give to the Israelites was to make them distinct from every other nation in the world. How do you make them distinct? Well, we saw even last week in the, in the text that Israel as a whole was known for their unbelief. There's a remnant of believers within Israel, but as a whole, they were known for their unbelief. So what do you, how do you motivate a lot of non-believers to be generous? Well, you legislate it, you make it a law, and you tell them they have to, and then you reward them when they do. And that is what God would do in, in his interactions with Israel. That's why he makes every promise that he makes. If you do this, you will be blessed. And that is God's way of making Israel distinct from every other nation. And that's the danger, though, of trying to apply these same truths in the same way today. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, I struggled a lot in school. My report cards, man, if I got like a C, it was like everyone got excited at the Tugwell house. C plus. I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, C is for Christian. Um, and so, <laughs> like, so we would just get excited. And so, my dad would look at my report card and, and try to motivate me somehow. He said, Ben, if you do better in this subject, uh, next quarter when we get the report card, we'll go to Applebee's. And Applebee's in the 90s was the bomb. I don't know what happened to it, but it was. And we, you're going to get a riblet basket. Anybody ever had a riblet basket at Applebee's? I don't even know if they still have those things, but they used to be, I mean, insane. And we would sit there and watch basketball. I'd get the biggest riblet basket I could possibly get. And then when you're done, you get the fries and you dip it in that sauce. I don't even think they're real ribs, but they're amazing. They tasted really good. I didn't care. I still don't care. If you gave me a riblet basket, I'd probably eat it today. And so, but that's what, that was what I would do. And so I would get, my grades would get better. And, I would, and then I would start having this motivation. Okay, I want to I wanna have a riblet basket. I, wanna, I don't want to be lazy today. I want to study this subject so I can get a riblet basket. And then I got the riblet basket. But, but here's, here's what would happen. As I got older, the motivation for me to do things was different. When I got to college, no more riblet basket bin. Just do better in school. If you don't and you fail out, you will not get a good job later on in life. Different motivation. It's not like my dad says, hey, son, raise your kids well. If you do, I'll give you a riblet basket. That would be insulting to me as a man, would it not? Why? Because I've matured past the riblet basket stage. Thank God I've, re I've moved on to other things. What motivates me to be a good husband? What motivates me to be a good father? What motivates me to be a good pastor? love. I just love my family. I love the church. I want to do it. And I love the Lord over all of those things. And that's my motivation. I don't need the riblet basket to preach good sermons. I just want to preach good sermons because I love the Lord. You don't say, please preach a good sermon for me, Ben. You'll get a riblet basket when you're done. 
It's different. Why is it different? Because I've matured. Now, here's the thing about Israel. They were not mature. They were known for their unbelief. They had to have these sort of incentives. So a lot of promises that were made to Israel about how they prosper if they follow God's uh, commands are all incentives to motivate them to be obey, obey so that they would be distinct from other nations. See the theme here? This is God's way of showing the Israelites, if you obey, good things will happen. If you don't obey, bad things will happen. But remember, this is how God interacted with Israel in order to make them a nation distinct from everyone else. Therefore, we can't necessarily apply these truths the same way. We can still apply these truths, but not the same way. And quite honestly, the prosperity gospel is actually founded on misreading or misusing passages in the Old Testament the wrong way. Trying to apply what God meant for a particular people at a particular time and trying to force it into the way that we interact with each other today. And so my question, the question then is, why in the world, that's, if all that's true, why in the world did Paul choose in this chapter about generosity where he says, look, it's not about the law. You're motivated to give based on what the gospel has done in your life and you give accordingly. And that way you give cheerfully, you give generously, you give radically. If he's laying all these truths out, then why in the world does he go back to the Old Testament and quote Psalm 112 where it talks about rewards? It seems odd, doesn't it? Well, here's why he does it. Well, he actually explains why he does it in verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest. Now, this starts to sound like prosperity gospel. Okay, he's going to increase the harvest. But what does he increase the harvest of? Financial things, material things? No. What does he increase the harvest of? Your what? Righteousness. So is there a reward? Yes. Is it material things? Not guaranteed. What is guaranteed when you are generous as a believer in Jesus Christ? Your righteousness. That's the reward. And then he begins to unpack it. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So God increases our love for him when we give. And not only that, Others have the chance to give thanks to God because they see your generosity. And he's saying, this is the reward. And what God promises, and I love what he promises here. He says, I will, uh, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. In other words, God will give believers in Jesus Christ enough to be generous, and I want you to see that because most of you are sitting there thinking, well, if I had more money, I could be more generous. When statistically, the wealthier you are, the most likely you won't be generous. 
But the reality is, a believer in Jesus, when our hearts are transformed by the gospel, our motive is to be generous, and he's promised you that he will give you enough to be generous. Now, it's important you know that this morning because you see God's provision here. In the text, we see God's purpose for providing the believer with money. First of all, he'll give you what you need to live. Second of all, he'll give you enough that you need to be generous. Let's unpack those two ideas just for a moment. First of all, let's just think about the Lord's Prayer. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, even if you've never been in church in your whole life, you've probably heard the Lord's Prayer on a movie. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. What Jesus is modeling for his disciples and how we pray to the Father. Daily bread is give me enough to live. Give me enough to live. We see the same language that's used in Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful, needful for me. At least I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or at least I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. I love the honesty and the transparency of this proverb because he's saying two things I ask, Lord. When I die, don't let me have the reputation of being a rotten scoundrel who lies all the time. Don't, don't let me be that guy. But even as I live on this earth, two things I ask. Give me just enough to live. But don't give me too little, God, because I'm going to steal something. I like that. Like He's like, I know the wickedness of my heart. I know I'm kind of screwed up, God. So if you don't give me enough to eat, I'll probably steal. Like That's what the proverb said. Like, I'm not making this up. This is in God's word. And he's saying, but give me just enough so I can live. Which is interesting because what's the difference? Because it sounds very similar to what Jesus is saying to his disciples when you pray. When you pray, just say, give me my daily bread. But what's the difference between what Jesus prays and what Jesus commands us to pray versus what the proverb, writer of that proverb says? Well, Jesus, to begin his, his prayer, if you were to look at Matthew's gospel where Jesus' prayer shows up, you say, our Father who are in heaven, what's the next words? Hallowed be thy name. Good job. Hallowed be thy name. What does hallowed be thy name mean? It means let me, as I approach the throne of grace, as I stand before the Father, let me exalt your name. Let me glorify your name. And then what's going to happen next in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, what you began to see Jesus uh, model for his disciples, as you're hallowing the name of the Lord, you're asking these requests so that these requests that are being made known would glorify Christ. So he says, give me this day my daily bread. He's saying, give me enough to eat so I can live long enough to hallowed your name, to exalt your name. Give me just the right amount, Lord, what I would do that. And then Paul's going to actually take it a little step further. He's going to say, give me enough where I can do that and I can be generous. 
and others would hallowed the name of Christ. God will give you what you need to live. God will give you what you need to be generous. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. And he picks it up in verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the passing grace of God upon upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul is reminding this church at Corinth, as you give to the church of Achaia, know that there's a reward here And that reward is your righteousness. But not only that, you get to see it bless others. And by them being blessed by your generosity, they love Jesus more as well. And so the reward that we see that is given, as we think about this morning, generosity, and the, the importance of understanding the promise of the reward. Friends, we're not promised material things when we give generously. We're not promised a tenfold return on what we give. We're not promised health and wealth. If that were true about every believer, how would you explain the apostles who suffered, who died for the sake of the gospel? How would you explain church history of faithful men and women who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel and were just faithful to the gospel, who lived in poverty and lived suffering throughout the nations, throughout the world, even right now in other countries? We see people suffering for the gospel over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it's not promised that they're going to have health and wealth. It's not promised that we'll have financial prosperity. Why are they willing to do that? Because the reward, the biblical, New Testament, New Covenant reward is greater than all of those things. What is the reward? It's far better. It's verse 10 and 11. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed, pursuing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be rich in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. What's the reward? The reward is you and I, through our generosity, we get to be more like Jesus. And through giving sacrificially and generously, not only do we get to be more like Jesus, but we get to be a part of his kingdom and we get to see others become more like Jesus as well. The mission of our church, integrity, we often communicate it this way. We say the mission of integrity is to mature and multiply believers to leave a gospel legacy. When we think about maturing, we often say, okay, maturity is to to mature in Christ. You need to know what scripture says. You need to be in community with other believers. You need to grow as a healthier believer. You need to be a member of a local church. And we say, okay, that's maturity. But then we say, okay, multiplication, how do you multiply? Well, multiplying is sharing the gospel where you live, work, and play. It's being missional in your neighborhood. It's being missional in the city. It's sending out church planners. It's sending out missionaries. We, we, we talk about it that way. But a layer that we often forget to communicate and how our mission plays out to mature and multiply. Mature, maturity is not just reading the Bible. We see in 2 Corinthians 9 
that maturity is actually being generous. That's another step of maturity. Because giving makes us sacrifice, and sacrificing is being more like Christ. But not only is it maturity, but it also applies to multiplying. Multiplying does absolutely happen through believers sharing the gospel, through you sharing the gospel, inviting your friends to be a part of gospel community. And that happens. That's how multiplication happens. But let me just say this. Multiplication also happens when we, when we are generous. Actually, multiplication can't happen unless we're generous. Why were we able to send out a missionary to East Asia last year? Because you were generous. Because all of you decided, okay, we want to be generous to this couple. We want to come along to this couple and send them out. Why were we able to plant a church last year in Wilmington, North Carolina, and send out 20 people with them? Because you were generous. Why were we able to uh, help the Third Street Community Center and help uh, Restoration Church and our, our missionaries that we just sent out last year again, a second time to help with the SUV and to help uh, the kitchen at the Third Street Community Center and help uh, Restoration Church as they have uh, set up and tear down equipment that they need to purchase for their church plant? Why were we able to do that? Because you were generous. Generosity leads to multiplication. And we have, and God just like we have to raise up people who pray, just like we have to pray, raise up people we, who go, we have to raise up people who give and who are generous. And so the reason why Paul shares these two chapters about generosity to the church of Corinth is he wants them to see, yes, this is what happened in Macedonia. People gave under extreme poverty and extreme affliction, but he wants to see it reproduced in Corinth and throughout the churches, just like it needs to be reproduced today for the gospel to advance. And so it's my hope as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 in this section on what we treasure, that the, is that the gospel and the grace of God would take root in our heart in such a way that it challenges us to be more generous. That, our, that we would cherish the gospel so much that we would look at our money and look at our possessions and it would pale in comparison to how much we treasure Christ because we realize the beauty and the weight of what Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf. I want us and the elders, I speak on behalf of all of us, I want us to see a church that is so generous that Greenville would marvel and say, how in the world did all of these younger families, young professionals, broke college students, how were they able to do all that? How were they able to bless so many people that way? And I hope that our answer wouldn't be, well, it's because we're really awesome. No, I hope our answer would be, because we treasure Christ above everything else. We want Greenville, and we want Eastern North Carolina, and we want the rest of the world to see a glorious Savior. Might that be our reward? Might that be our treasure? Would that be us, Integrity Church? God help us. Let's pray.